All right, our uh, text for today, I guess, probably Ephesians four twenty-five through like uh, I don't know five to it. Uh, what's that? Yeah, well, uh, I kind of added on a little bit at the end, probably like five seven. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing rather than let them, or rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need to so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Fornication and impurity of any kind, greed, must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among the saints, entirely out of place as obscenely seen and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, uh, Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, because the, things, uh, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Do not be associated with them. So we've been working through Ephesians, and we're talking about what I think is a world-changing vision of the grace of Christ and what it is entailed in thinking about a, a truly kind of not only broad but radical understanding of, of grace as the gift that makes the world possible, of grace as the gift that makes possible every good and perfect thing that we experience, of grace as uh, the, uh, I don't know, uh, as, as one uh, uh, chap that I like to read put it, is the horizon for our very being. I've been talking about grace as an ontology, which is a fancy way of talking about the idea that uh, for the Christian to live in the world is to understand that everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we are given, even the horizon for our history, for our action, for everything, is saturated with and given to us in grace. And that has, I think, big implications for how we think about not just Ephesians and how we read Ephesians, but for how we think about what it means to be a Christian. And the basic shtick has been to say that uh, we tend to see grace in fairly narrow terms. So if you ask folks to Talk about grace, they might say something like, well, it's a suspension of a penalty that we deserved. And it is that, but it's more than that. It's more than the idea that uh, you deserve the cross, but Christ stood in for you. That is an expression of grace, but there is more to grace than that, at least as I read Ephesians. And one of the most powerful uh, representations of God's grace is the cross, for sure. But one of the things that it causes us to think differently about is I don't know, uh, it causes us to re, uh, rethink the kind of entitlement we have towards ourselves, towards what we deserve, and towards the world if we see that everything is the result of, of a gift that God has given us. And the, the scope of those gifts is something that I think we need to expand. If you think about the Greek word for grace, charis, it does kind of mean it. It's very root, a gift which is given but not deserved. And even all, all the words we'll look at for salvation, for example, have that kind of same derivation from the sense of gift. And I don't know, like there are two big reasons why I'm kind of motivated to help us read Ephesians this way. The first one is, I, I don't know how else to, I, I, I don't know the kind of polite indoor politic way to say it, but if I notice the points in myself where I feel 
either resentful or feel like I'm not getting the things that I deserve or feel like the world is not going my way. And I really look at myself as I think about those things. There is at the root of my own understanding of world and understanding that uh, my life is mine, that my life is mine to dispose of as I'd like to, that I have uh, been given certain kinds of entitlements by virtue of being placed in the world. And darn it, I'm not getting the things I deserve. And there's an element of thinking about grace is broader than that that says that everything that we have, as Augustine says, was made from nothing. Everything that we have was created ex nihilo. Everything that we have is a result of God deciding and desiring that we have that gift. And to me, that reframes the way that we think about what we're entitled to if we see even our own breath or our own existence and the folks around us as being something that is an excessive and beautiful and, I don't know, incredible gift that is given in love and one that we didn't deserve. We might not even deserve it more than we deserve the suspension of the moral penalty and the cross in some sense. And that's kind of what I want to get at is that God's love and God's grace, the thing that we see is kind of bound up in the excessive gift of the cross applies to every element of our existence. And second of all, I think is, I, uh, I don't know, as I've talked to my other evangelical and even non-evangelical friends, I imagine a lot of this comes out of my history talking with, uh, with Mormon friends, is the idea that as people read the text of Ephesians, what starts with the radical gift of grace almost always gets narrowed down back to, I don't know, a series of things that we have to live up to in order to be deserving for grace. And to me, it destroys the purpose. You see, once you see grace as a gift that was given to you while you were yet a sinner, once you see grace as something that's, uh, I don't know, broader than just the idea that Christ threw you a lifeline at the cross, once you see grace as being something that starts with God imagining you, your name, and your person from the beginning of time and desiring you and seeing the universe not to be complete without you. Once you see a God who, I don't know, is not really bound by time or bound by the conditional, but the typical constraints that we have about seeing what's going to happen in the future. Once you see that that God created and gave you the world and loved you and desired you and did all those things and knew everything that you were going to do, whether it be good or whether it be bad, you start to see the character of God's grace towards us as not just a gift, which is excessive, is not just a gift, which is beautiful, but I think you start to understand way more fully the idea that God is like a parent who sees you as you are and loves you as you are and still gives you everything because God's goal is for you to become a member of and to be fully engrafted into and to be to live and to thrive in the context of a kingdom. So that's why I'm concerned with the idea that our vision of grace is too small. Because often folks who worship and think and talk like us don't embrace that radical vision of grace that said God desires you and gives you a place in the universe and a purpose. And that the point of what, God, of what Paul is saying and the way that Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit writing about the concept of grace is not that we need to earn that grace, is not that we need to live up to it, but instead that we understand ourselves to be children who are given a purpose and a place and an office. And the thing that God is asking us to do is to live as if God has fully accepted and embraced us. Because really, I don't know, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's these like two evangelical tendencies that kind of miss the point of grace. One of them is the one we learned in youth group, and it's the one that says, of course, God loves us, but man, do I feel bad about what I've been acting and how I've been thinking and all those things. And then we start to feel, I don't know, subtly not worthy of the gift that God gives us, which is weird because it puts our own uh, modes of judgment against God's gift and God's judgment. And then on the other hand, there's a bunch of our friends that say something like, I don't know, the uh, world is going to pass away and we're totally forgiven, so why do our actions matter and why would you tell me to live differently? Because that seems to kind of smell... I don't know, weirdly like a, 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 an argument about the character of works. And we're evangelicals. We don't believe in works. We believe that grace is a gift. And in the end, the idea of grace gets tied to this idea of us earning it or us being, 
I don't know, worthy of ex- extension to us, to us. And I think Paul is writing against that as, as forcefully as he can to say that the point is that if you understand everything that you have to be a gift, if you understand that God has called you into the kingdom, the main reasons why and the main purposes for you to be a member of that kingdom are to live in the way that God asks you and wants you and desires you to live and then a way that God sets out for you that allows you to flourish, allows you to fully own that kind of inheritance. So I don't know, that, uh, that, that vision of grace creates a new understanding of sin. And I was thinking about this a lot as I was working with this, uh, 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 with, the, with the text here today. And it's funny if you think about what, uh, I don't know, what does a list invoke for you? What are the different places where you list things? Because when you think about it in the context of the scripture, there are lots of different lists that generally, what's the primary way that we receive lists in scripture? We receive lists of sins don't we? The Ten Commandments is a list of things that we're not supposed to do. And there's a number of runs in the New Testament where Paul is talking about the kinds of behaviors that are not appropriate to the Christian. And what does he do? He lists them. And I don't know, when I think about the things that I have or compose lists around, there are not that many things that I compose lists around that really make me feel awesome about the fact that I'm encountering a list. I've got a to-do list. I might have a grocery list. I might have a list of behaviors that I'd like to achieve. I might be assigned a list from somewhere else, but it's almost always as if the list kind of feels like here's a set of things which we don't really always know exactly the principle that ties the list together, but we know that by virtue of it being on the list that there's some authority that wants us to achieve some goal that's embodied on that list. And I don't know, I guess one of the questions is Paul listing the things that Christians are not supposed to do as he finishes up Ephesians. Because there's a different way of reading what Paul is doing here, and that's the kind of reading I'm going to try and walk us through. And the different way of reading it is not necessarily this is a list of things that we can and can't do. The different reading is that, uh, uh, that this is not necessarily a kind of restatement of the idea that the law is important. The different reading here is that Paul is talking about a grace that not only changes the character of the universe, it changes the character of how we think about sin, but it really changes the character of how we think about our relationship to God and our relationship to the law. Because in the old model, the model of the list, the point was there are all these behaviors that you weren't supposed to engage in because they offended God or because they were intrinsically wrong. And in the new model, Paul is suggesting something different, that the measure of sin is not the fact that something is intrinsically wrong or even necessarily that it offends God, but instead Paul is laying out a model here for us to think about sin that says the primary measure of sin is the effect that it has on the community of people around you and with whom you are members. And so that changes the way we think about the character in the context of sin. Paul says in 25, So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members one of another. The word there for putting away is laying aside. So the Greek word is apotithiema, and it means something like, I don't know, it has actually the same root word as our word for tithe does. And I find that intensely interesting. Paul saying something like, we all used to live in some version of falsehood. We talked over the last couple of weeks about the idea that we might walk or shamble around without a purpose or an intention. And one of the things that Jesus does for us is Jesus shows us who we are, shows us our direction in the cosmos, and shows us our purpose. And Paul is saying something like, we used to live without a purpose. We used to live almost as if we had a tithe or obligation to, I don't know, to ourselves, to our culture, to the things that were laid out for us. And then we discovered Christ and were given a new reality. And here's the funny thing. The translation that most folks have for uh, 25 falsehood, is that what most people have? The, uh, so then putting away falsehood? Yeah, so the Greek word there is pseudos. 
the word that we use for fake, like pseudonym, pseudoscientific. We all kind of know this word pseudos. And of course, pseudos can have this sense of falsehood, but there are other words that are more directly for, uh, 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 translatable for like uh, something that is a, a lie. Pseudos sometimes has the moral sense of the lie, but I think it's more accurately translated as pseudos being something that was fake. And if you think about it that way, it makes a lot more sense. Paul was saying that there was a time when we wandered around in our own lives where we focused on our own desires, where we focused on what it was that we wanted or what it was that our culture gave us, and that focus was fake. It's what caused us to shamble around. It's what caused us to miss the purpose and intention that Christ had laid out for us in the world. And the problem with it is not necessarily just that it is a falsehood. It's that it's in being fake, it ignores who Jesus is. It ignores the fact that Christ's coming into the world has fundamentally changed reality. It ignores the fact that grace has the character of a radical gift that puts everything else, I don't know, and kind of the subservience to it, that everything that we see, everything that we have, and everything that we are is a result of God's gift of Christ's act of self-giving. And I guess the thing that I think Paul's trying to say here is we used to wander or shamble around like the walking dead where we oriented ourselves towards our own fake idols. And in doing so, we were not quite exactly just living a lie, but we were living towards something that wasn't real. And all of a sudden, Christ comes to us and Christ grabs us and shows us the character of grace and shows us the character of what has been given to us at the cross and what has been given to us in the incarnation. And all of a sudden, it doesn't make sense to live fake anymore. All of a sudden, there's a real reality to the relationship that you have with the people around you, a real reality to the possibility of our relationship with God. And so we live differently. And then the question is, is Paul just going to list the things from, that come from that? Well, something funny comes out of paying close attention to the things on the list. So 26 says, do, or be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Now, this is really interesting because the word for anger there, uh, or giste, is something like to, uh, to be provoked or to set yourself in opposition to. And I guess Paul is saying something like it's okay to set yourself passionately in opposition to things, but maybe not okay to set yourself passionately in opposition to people in instances where it creates division between ourselves and others. I was a fan of, and I don't know if anybody else is, but I used to be a huge fan of Watchman Nee. Y'all ever at any point read any of the devotions from Watchman Nee? And Watchman Nee had this kind of beautiful insight that he took from, uh, I mean, the Desert Fathers or, 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 or folks who said something like this, but the, it, it used to paraphrase this idea that the mark of someone who was growing in faith and who was growing in grace is not that they are confident that they are on the path to sanctification and not that they are confident that sin is being winnowed out of their life, but the mark of a person who is growing in faith and grace is that the more deeply they are tied to Jesus, the more they understand the depth of their sin the more they see and the clearer terms they see how completely it was woven into the character of their life. And I don't know, that's what, uh, that's what I think Paul is saying here. Instead of the idea that we feel like we are somehow equipped with a righteous anger that allows us to uh, exercise, uh, I don't know, our judgment against sin, Paul's saying, look, it's okay to be angry, but don't focus or fix that anger on others. Don't exercise wrath towards others, that is the thing that makes room for the devil. And if we're in touch with the idea that Jesus has located us all in a new reality that binds us all together and that we all share in him, if we're okay with that idea that what we're supposed to do is to think about how our words and actions affect others, then all of a sudden, the way we think about sin changes from being about what we do to what the effects are on the community around us. I don't know, that's why thieves have to give up stealing. That's why they have to work honestly with their own hands 
so as to have something to share with the body. It's the same basic idea around the idea of words. When we steal, I mean, it's not like the early Christian community was a big fan of property rights. You know, most of them held all things in common. What's wrong with stealing? What's wrong with the act of stealing was this. It's not that it intrinsically violates the idea of property. It's that when I steal, I am secretly taking something for the sake of benefiting myself instead of it benefiting the community. And Paul's saying that person who steals, instead of taking something for themselves secretly so that it benefits the whole of the community, instead, what, they sh- should, what should they do? They should labor so that everything that they do creates a good for everybody else. And all of a sudden, when you start to see the idea that Paul is saying that the way we think about sin is different, it's not just about the intrinsic offense that's bound up in the act, but it's about the way that it affects our community, all of a sudden this looks like a lot more than a random list of behaviors. What Paul's saying is that there are all these behaviors that pop up in community, and the question about what we do with those behaviors is more fundamentally the question about whether or not those behaviors are aiming at building us up in the fake reality, or whether or not those behaviors are aimed at building all of the body up in connection with the new reality in which Christ is the head. That's why when he does 29, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building up. Look, this is the application of this principle to the idea of words, but it's more than that. I believe it's the summary for all of the actions that are captured here. I think in 29 to translate the idea as evil talk is kind of a bad translation. The word for evil in the moral sense, the Greeks might be like kakos or something. There's all kinds of words for evil. But the word that Paul uses here that gets translated as evil is sapros. And you know what sapros? Have you ever gone downstairs late at night and you're kind of hungry and I don't know if you're like me, sometimes you really want a peanut butter and banana sandwich because that's exactly what hits the spot. Maybe it's not for you, but there's this specific feeling that you get when you get, you toast the bread and you put the butter on it, you put the peanut butter on it, and then you go to grab the banana and we have this big fight in our house about what constitutes a ripe banana and Beth is definitely on the wrong side of it, which is Beth likes bananas that are basically rotten. Okay, sapros, the Greek word for that is sapros. It was the word for the rotten banana. And there is nothing more useless than having your peanut butter ready to go and then looking at these rotten bananas sitting on the stand and saying, there's no way that I can make a sandwich out of this. Paul is talking about words that are sapros, rotten or useless. They do not do or fulfill the intention that they were aimed at. That's why the opposition here, I don't think, is between good words and evil words. What's the opposition between? It's between, well, I don't know, think about the roots of that English term edifying. We often think about edifying as meaning like rainbows and unicorns and boy, it touched my spirit in a way that was great. But the literal root of it is what? To build up an edifice, to make something. And I don't know, the the opposition between the rotten word here, the sapros word, the word that's like that rotten banana, well, Paul says is what? Edifying here, the Greek word is oikodomen, which is, uh, I don't know, we've talked about it before. It's the point of Ephesians, as Paul lays it out earlier. It's to build up the house of God. Words and actions that are good build up the house of God. They're the opposite of that rotten banana. They aim at and they strengthen the purpose of the whole. They are I don't know what, what, what's going on here. Once when you're stand, we understand that there's a new reality, the reality in which grace is the defining reality of everything. The law has fallen away. It's not just the question of whether or not actions are intrinsically good or bad, but Paul is kind of reframing the question of sin. There was an old vision of sin in the old version of the law that said the reason why you shouldn't sin is because it compromised your moral purity. 
Weirdly enough, there was almost kind of a narcissism built into the law, and we've all seen it before in people who are self-righteous who say, I'm not going to sin, not because I worry about the character of sin, but instead I worry about what it says about me if I sin. And there's this idea built into the law that allows us to subtly put the self as the idol at the center. And Paul is saying, look, in the new reality of grace, the question is not the question of the law. The question is not even, is there a way to save your butt from eternal consequences? The question is this, in the reality of grace, you are put inside of a new community. That new community unites you with other people and unites other people with Christ. Therefore, what you do towards them, you do towards Christ. And what you do towards Christ, you do towards them. And the character of the new community of grace is this, the measure of what we do or what we say is, does it build that community up? Does it make that community more dynamic, more powerful and effective at doing what it's supposed to do in the world? That's why we should put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander and malice be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, be forgiven, because Christ has forgiven us. And look, the last thing I really want to look at somewhat closely is that transition to chapter 5. I think it's you know, easy to see the case that this is not exactly like a list. This is about the working out of a concept. That concept is grace. And the end of chapter 4 uses the word forgiveness, like God, as in Christ, has forgiven you. The word for forgiveness there is, is what charizoma, it's the same root word as grace that God has given you, not just suspension from a penalty, but God has given you everything else. Existence created a world, understood in advance who you would be and what you would do, and nevertheless decides to extend that gift to you, that God has given us everything that we need because God loves us like a parent loves us and wants us to be grafted into that community. So we should imitate God, is Paul's point at the beginning of chapter 5. And here's the thing. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. I think that's the whole thing. If you live a life that is an imitation of Jesus, that is an honor to the principle of grace which Jesus has extended to us, and that as a result that does exactly what it is that Jesus would do in any situation. I think that we have been awfully good at emphasizing the idea that Jesus was a sacrifice that stood in for us and not quite as good as we could have been on the idea that what Jesus has done for us is to offer a fragrant offering to God. Think about the logic of sacrifice there. We are completely focused in many instances on the idea of Jesus' sacrifice and rightfully so because the sacrifice is powerful. But Paul is saying that to truly imitate the character of Jesus, to truly imitate what Jesus has done for us, that we not only imitate sacrifice, but we imitate this idea of the fragrant offering, the thing that affirms and edifies and builds up the community, that gives us a kind of pleasure and that draws us into the character and the power of that community, the thing that makes us different, not just because we are afraid of or worried about the suspension of a penalty, which God bless and God praise God for extending that element of grace to us, but to see grace in a bigger and more encompassing uh, setting is to see a grace that also offers us and asks for us and in fact demands that we be to each other that same kind of fragrant affirmation of the character of God's love. And if you think about it that way, if you think about that as being the thing that Paul is asking for us with this list, do not live in response to the fake idol 
that is of that, that orients you towards your own purposes and desires, but instead live towards and connect yourself with and understand yourself to be members of a community. I think it totally changes that run in three, which is translated as fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as, as proper among the saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that nor, no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance of the kingdom of God or Christ. What does that mean? The, the whole question of Ephesians is this. Do you take that ending to mean that God is sitting in heaven and making judgments about whether or not you are a fornicator, that you are greedy, that you are obscene or silly or vulgar talker, or if whether or not you're appropriately exercising Thanksgiving? Does that mean that God has created a list that's very similar to the old list that says that you cannot be impure or you cannot be greedy? Maybe. But I think a much better reading of what Paul is saying here is this. That thing that most Bibles translate in verse 5 as a parenthetical, that is an idolater. If you read the grammar of the Greek, Paul, I think, is saying that all these things, fornication, impurity, greed, uh, uh, obscenity in talk, silliness in talk, vulgarness in talk, lack of thanksgiving, all those things are examples of idolatry. Why? Because every one of those things that we do, whether it's fornication, whether it's greed, whether it's talking in a way that doesn't build up the community, whether it's being impure, any of those things, the point is the reasons why we do those things is because they edify and build up us. Because they speak to our desires, because they look at and, and gather up for us the things that we want. I think the reason why all of these things are prohibited is not because of their intrinsic character, but instead it's because they are ways of returning us to the fake, and that is idolatrous reality that does not see Christ as the center. And I think the point of this little run in 3 through 7 is this. It doesn't necessarily say do not be associated with them. It says do not partake with them. What does it mean to not partake with them? I don't think it means that it's an active principle of exclusion because I hope not, because I have certainly been guilty of various kinds of impurity, of greed, uh, certainly of obscene and often of silly and or vulgar talk all the time. I don't read this as being something that asks ask that I be excluded from Christian community as a result of it. I think it is not a normative that says you have to stop all these things if you want to get in. I think it's a descriptive that says in order for us to fully live into and lean into the character of a community that is founded on grace, we have to be different. And when we are different, that community can thrive and flourish. That when we are, are different and when we partake around the principle of grace and see the basic character of God's grace as being a gift that, that none of us deserve and that animates all of us, we can live and in fact we can grow, then we can be informed by and we can be driven by the character of the Holy Spirit and we can fully assume our role as brothers and sisters and inheritors of the kingdom of God. That's the character of grace. Not a list that says what we can or can't do, not a principle that screens us, but instead a calling to which God asks that we aim ourselves to ourselves be a fragrant offering for the whole of the community. Amen.